Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. There's subcultures that make up our culture. Like every group has their own behaviors, their own words that get used in that culture. And one of my hobbies, I love sports. I do. I love a good high school baseball game, man, because Major League is just pitching, batting, boom, boom. But a high school baseball game, man, there's a lot of offense that goes into that. And so one of my hobbies is I get to do play-by-play announcing for high school football on Friday night. I'm in my third season. Absolutely love it. My first two seasons, my color analyst was a former high school football coach. Now, he's, he's moved on. He's now actually coaching football again, but he had coached football before. And so he knew a lot of that language. And so I was constantly have to remind those guys, hey, let's think about who's watching the stream. It's people who can't or won't come to the game because it's too hot, because in August and September, it's really, really hot. And then to November, I mean, end of October and November, it's really cold. Sometimes games are too far. So we have a lot of grandmas. We have a lot of aunts. And, and literally, we have people from all over the United States that are jumping online and they're watching their nephew play or their niece in the band. We, we show all of that and stuff. So I did not play football in high school. I just love to watch it. So I don't know a lot of the locker room lingo, all right? But if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I'm going to kind of give you just a snapshot of how a typical football play is called. If you've ever listened to the radio, and even TV does a little bit different than radio, and some of you, you're not going to understand a thing this means. I got you. I I totally understand. But just humor me for just a second. And so this is kind of what a typical play would look like. All right? Quarterbacks in the shotgun snap. Got the ball. He's got a little bit of time. Now he's under pressure. Uh-oh, Caden Smith going to get through the line. He's going to sack him for a two-yard loss. Now, I know some of you have no idea that doesn't make any sense to you what I just said, but this is how that goes. I would call the play of what took place on the field, and then a miracle happens. I shut up. I know, right? And then my color analyst would then use his coaching skills or his knowledge to break down what happened. Yeah, man, the center missed that block. That linebacker hesitated just a moment. That lane to open up. He got through the A-gap. And some of you can close your eyes, and all you need to know is the color of the jerseys, because what I just said, you can perfectly see it happen in your mind. There are some of you, this is why you don't like football. You know what I'm saying? Like, did he score a home run or not? No, that's a, it's a different sport, right? So constantly with my broadcast team, I'm trying to say, guys, we got to remember who's watching. Grandma, who has no clue what an eye formation or left tackle or what an A-gap is. We have to be descriptive. Use your words, right? So A-gap's right up the middle, by the way, if you were curious. So there is a subculture to football. The football fans can talk about this and that and pistol and formation and tight end, and some of you are going, <laughs> where's the popcorn, right? We all have subcultures. There's a language. There's a behavior. And you have to learn the language and the behavior that goes along with it. And if you use the wrong words, it can be rather embarrassing. Speaking from experience, right? So musicians have a subculture. Artists have subculture. Teens have subculture. Sports have subculture. Teenagers, they are their own subculture. They can say something and you have no idea what they just told you. Man, that's down low, busting, no cap. Cap what? I don't even know. The church is no different. 
we're a subculture. We have terms. We have behaviors. We have phrases. And only Christians or churches in that subculture can understand. You know what I'm talking about? Let me show you for just a moment. I'm not going to do sports play-by-play. I'm going to do church play-by-play, right? Let's just pretend for a minute that you are new to church. It's first Sunday. You didn't grow up in church or whatever. And let's just, let's pretend. And the preacher gets up on stage and he starts talking and he says, Hallelujah, I believe that a breakthrough is moving into your life and there's a new anointing that's coming on that's going to break every yoke of stronghold in your life. And there's people going, Amen. But you're thinking about, what about the A women too? Like, is that just for men? I don't know. Anybody else got an egg and like a yolk? Because I didn't bring no egg to church. And it's confusing with the words that they're using up on stage. And then he goes on, and the righteousness of God is bringing a redemption into your life if you'll just invite Jesus to come into your heart. And you go, how's he going to get in there? I don't know. Is there a button I don't have? I grew up in church. Now I remember sitting in church. I have no clue what he just said, but everyone was clapping, right? I try. I don't always get it right. I try to keep in mind who's listening. I try to keep in mind as I preach and as I teach that there's folks that have been in church longer than I've been alive, and you kind of wish I would stomp on the devil and preach a little bit like that and yell a little bit more. I got you. I hear you. And then there's other people that are new to church. Maybe a young person who didn't, didn't grow up in that type of church climate and just want to give you some warning. What I'm going to talk about today can sound weird. What I'm going to talk about today can sound somewhat strange because we're talking about a spiritual realm. We're talking about things that happen in the unseen arena of life. And to be honest with you, there are forces. There are good and evil, and we are at war in what we call spiritual warfare. Thursday night. I received a text from a friend of mine. He said a 30, uh, excuse me, a 23-year-old cousin had just been killed in a head-on accident by a drunk driver. It was in Sky Two. Some of you probably saw that on the news. About an hour or so later, his wife texted me and said, hey, I just want you to know his cousin, we'll still be praying for her. And I was just texting her. She said, yeah, it feels like we have just been under attack Different conversation, different person. Pastor said, first on the move west, right down the street. Been a friend of mine for a long time, conversation with him. He said, man, it just feels like there's a lot of people in church that have just been under attack. Matter of fact, Wednesday night, while we were having a night of worship, they called just a special prayer meeting because they feel like the spiritual attack has just been escalated. I shared this first Wednesday, if you were here. I was talking about, man, October, just, I don't know if you've ever been walking in, a, in water that has a current to it. Man, I just talk, I just feel like in October I was walking upstream, fighting the current spiritually. It just feels like there's been this escalated spiritual attack. Now, in the church, we see more people get saved this time of year than we do the other times. In, in the harvest time, and we, and we see a harvest. But in the church, we also see more spiritual attack from the enemy than in the time. And here's why. So Pastor Chris Hodges, pastor of Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama, he tells this story about a man, his church, that had gotten saved, but he had been in the satanic cult. Like he had worshipped Satan and witchcraft and Wiccan and, and all that. But he got saved. 
eventually Chris had the opportunity to talk with him. And, you know, and he was describing that in satanic worship and witchcraft and so on and so forth, that they have four big spiritual seasons. They have four big spiritual feasts. He says the main one is in October that revolves around Halloween. And the guy said that we would fast and pray to Satan during that time. And that's weird. It's like, why would you fast and pray to Satan? He's like, well, what, what are you fast and praying about? And he goes, this is what we would fast and pray about. We would fast and pray for church leaders to get caught up in sin and stumble and fall. They would pray for husbands to cheat on their wives because they know if they can destroy the family or wives to cheat on their husbands. They would pray for leaders to fall. They would pray for children to get hooked on addiction. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like October was a spiritual grind. There's a spiritual war that's going on that I can't see with my physical eyes, but it takes place in the spiritual realm. And I want to talk about spiritual warfare, but I want to give you kind of a working definition because some of you may be new to church. Like, I don't even know what that means. Let me just tell you, this, this, I didn't Google this or anything. This is, I just closed my eyes on my notebook. I tried to write down what to me, how would I define what a spiritual attack is and what spiritual warfare is? So this is pure Brent Kellogg version, the BKB. This is what I think spiritual attack is. A spiritual attack is a seen, but more than not, it's an unseen attempt or attempts from Satan and his dominion to tempt, cause to sin, discourage, even destroy your spiritual growth by attacking your emotions, thoughts, and even your circumstances. Like, that's me trying to describe to you what a spiritual attack is. My friend that his cousin died, and said, man, it just feels like we've been under attack. Pastor Seth, and even what I would describe, man, it just feels like there's been this, this spiritual attack. It's attempts from the enemy to get you to stumble, to cause you to sin, to discourage you, to, to stop you from spiritually growing, kind of destroy your faith, if you will, by attacking your emotions, your thoughts, and sometimes even your circumstances. Now, this is spiritual warfare. If that's what the devil is doing, spiritual warfare is God and his kingdom and his principles combating that attack and those attempts from the enemy on my behalf and on your behalf. And that's a good place to say amen. That the God who's the creator of this universe, he is fighting for us. Now, there are multiple places in the Bible that give examples of spiritual warfare. The book of Job, and it's a little bit hard to read, but the book of Job is a great example. Job's circumstances, Job's thoughts, Job's emotions went through a horrific attack by our enemy, Satan. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, and I'm going to read part of this, there is a story or kind of Daniel's telling you of spiritual warfare that's going on. So here's what happened. Daniel prayed for an answer and God gave him a revelation and an angel or a messenger shows up and this is what he tells him. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. He said, then he, a messenger, an angel from God said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding, and humble yourself before your God. Your request has been heard in heaven. Amen. When I pray, God hears me, and he sends an answer. Come on, somebody, say amen. Say a woman. No, you don't have to do that, right? Messenger says, I have come in answer to your prayer. But, however, something you need to know. 
Like the minute Daniel answered God, minute Daniel prayed, God sent the answer. But verse 13 says, but for 21 days, that spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the good guys, one of the archangels came to help me. And so I left him there. Like he distracted that demon. He distracted that spirit that was going on. So I left him there to fight that. And I came on down here to bring you your answer. In this moment, Daniel paints a picture of two angels and then a third one gets involved of just warring in the heavens. Daniel didn't see it with his own eyes. It took place in what we call the unseen world, the spiritual realm. Preach you freaking me out a little bit. I know, just hang with me. I got you, right? Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to spend most of our time. And it talks about this unseen world where this three-angel battle took place that Daniel talks about and Paul's going to talk about it. So Ephesians chapter 6 says, verse 10, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on all of God's armor. You can't pick and choose. You can't take the parts you like and that are easy. You got to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your neighbors are not the enemy. The other political party is not the enemy. Alabama might be the enemy, but the Bible says we fight against flesh and blood enemies. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He talks about the unseen. He talks about heavenly places. He talks about the dark world. That's where the bad guys are. Evil spirits in heavenly places. And normally when we say heaven, we think about God on his throne and Jesus in his right hand. When we think about heaven, we think about that's the good guys. And I'm going to explain all that in just a moment. Ephesians 6 is probably the most in-depth and most famous passage that deals with spiritual attack and spiritual warfare and how you and I should be prepared. And in this passage, Paul uses an illustration of something seen to explain the unseen. You and I as Christians, we need to be aware. Maybe you've never heard of a spiritual attack, or maybe you never, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is new to you. And I'm just here telling you today, if you're following Christ, you need to know there is an enemy, as 1 Peter 5 eight says, that is seeking to devour you. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he can destroy. If Satan can keep you from getting saved, that's his number one goal. He wants you to spend an eternity in his dominion. In hell, he wants you to be on his team. But if he can keep you from getting saved, if he can't, you do give your life to Christ, then his next plan, his next strategy is to keep you so distracted, to see if you so trapped up in sin, to see you so discouraged in your faith that you're not doing any good for anybody. I can't help you get saved because I'm just caught up in this discouragement and distraction, trapped in my own sin. I can't tell anybody about the life-changing power of the gospel because I'm just stuck myself. And there is this battle that takes place in the unseen world. If I'm talking too fast, say amen. All right, slow down a little bit. So let me explain the heaven that he just talked about. Another place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is Paul talking. He did a thing. He had a thing, right? He said, I, as he called, was caught up in the, it says, third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body 
or I was out of my body. I don't know. Only God knows what happens in the moment. So if something happened to Paul, he doesn't really know. Did he have a vision? Did God let him see something? Acts chapter 14 talks about a moment where they thought they had killed him by throwing rocks at him. The term is stoned, and that gets confusing. I'm like college in the 80s. You know, he was actually, they, the Bible says they left him for dead. They thought Paul was dead. Did he die? Did he go to what he refers to as the third heaven? So if there's the third heaven, what about the first two? Let me give them to you. The first heaven is what you and I can see with our own eyes. We have a sun. We have a moon. Out in the country, we have these things called stars. They're awesome. You ought to see them. They're great. We have atmosphere. We've got clouds. That's the first heaven. Oh, man, just look up in the heavens. Isn't that awesome? That's, that's the first heaven. The third heaven that Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians is the throne room of God, where he is seated, watching over his multitude of creation. He's looking down upon you and I. Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That is the third heaven. So if the first heaven is the sun, moon, and stars, and the third heaven is where God's at, what is the second heaven? And the second heaven is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. Principalities of the unseen world. The second heaven is where that battle took place between the angels in Daniel chapter 10. In Job chapter 1, it says that Satan appears before God and he says, where have you been? He says, ah, running to and fro. Where was he at? He was in the second heaven. It's not seen with the physical eye. It's the unseen world. It's the spiritual realm. It's the second heaven. There are angels. There are demons. And the second heaven is where they operate. So how do I combat things in the second heaven that I can't see? Which one of y'all hit me? You know what I'm saying? How do I fight things that I can't touch and see? Things that are trying to tempt me and discourage me and derail me spiritually. Things that kind of freak me out a little bit. You know, what do I do? What do I do? Daniel fasted and prayed for 21 days. And we'll get to that part. But Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about this unseen world, he gives us a visible illustration to fight an invisible war. A visible illustration to fight an invisible war. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us a battle plan to fight spiritual warfare. And it's going to seem boring. And I don't know that a kid ever went to the coach and signed up for high school football, but he didn't have to do the boring stuff too. Like one of the worst practices of the week is Monday. You know, when you, when you go sign up to play a sport, man, you, you envision the Friday night lights on, the cheerleaders and the band going, and, and that's the stuff we sign up for, right? But, but there's also these things called two-a-days in August when it's hot. And there's Monday practice after you lost a game on Friday night that you got to get out there, man. you got to correct all the mistakes you had. And so none of this stuff is, is really going to be flashy, but it's stuff, if you and I are going to stand strong and fight a spiritual battle in an unseen world, we got to do some of this stuff and apply it in our lives. Amen? I'm going to read it all again, Ephesians chapter 6. Some of this I've already read. I'm going to hit it again, and we're going to jump in. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Verse 10, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So you got help. It ain't your mighty power, but be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all. You can't pick and choose. We need to do all of these things that Paul is going to describe for us 
Otherwise, I'm easy prey for the enemy. And my goal through this is that we are no longer easy prey for the enemy. That he come looking at you and see you've got on the full armor and go, I'm going to go find somebody else. Where's the Methodist church at? Oh, that was wrong. Don't tell, don't, take that out of the project. No, we love y'all. Just this, but not even nice. I know. Lord, forgive me. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Your spouse ain't the enemy. Your boss ain't the enemy. Your kids ain't the enemy. The other political party ain't the enemy. But we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of an unseen world, that second heaven, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places that you can't see with your physical eye. So therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what Paul wrote this for. That's what we want to do as Christians. We want to be able to resist the enemy in this time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Your hair's going to be messed up. <laughs> Woo! I'm still standing. I'm leaning on something, but I'm still standing, right? Stand your ground. So now it's like you're at the end of the battle, and then he goes to the beginning of the battle. And he starts with, stand your ground. Putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. I want to pause right there because he says two things. The first two components of putting on the full armor of God. First is the belt of truth. And then he says, the older translations call it the breastplate of righteousness or the body armor of righteousness. And I think it's interesting that he starts here. I think it's interesting that he starts with the belt because the belt would be what gathers everything together. It would be the thing that holds all the underclothes together, and it would actually be the thing you would hang your weapons on. And that's what collects everything together. It's the belt of truth. From the first time we see our enemy, Satan, and we see his influence in Genesis chapter 3, he lies, he uses half-truths, he uses deception. And that's why Paul says, you need to start by putting on the belt of truth. This is what Jesus says about Satan. And he's, he's talking to some religious people that just constantly make up lies about him. He's like, for you're the children of the father, the devil, and you love to do evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character because he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So Jesus is saying from the beginning, the devil's a liar. He uses deception and half-truth that his number one enemy's weapon is lies and deception. Two specific examples in scripture that come to mind. I'm gonna show them to you. The first one you already referenced, Genesis chapter three. In the beginning, God created, right? And he made man and woman. Go bake babies and be fruitful and multiply, right? Then chapter three, it says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say what he was trying to do? That's a leading question. He uses a half truth. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? So what God said was don't eat any of the fruit from this tree in the garden. 
But the enemy takes that and he spins it, creates confusion, uses deception, tells a half-truth. He was wanting to create confusion around God's word. He was wanting to get them to question what God said. That's the first example. The second example comes in the New Testament in what we call the temptation of Jesus. So after Jesus was baptized, he went out in the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell of the temptation of Jesus. I want to use Matthew's narrative, okay? And I want to say, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 3, something pretty cool happens. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And when he comes up out of the water, something happens. Matthew 3, 16, after Jesus' baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Jesus heard the truth from God's voice. You are my son. Matthew chapter 4, just one turn, the page. Satan tries to get Jesus to question what he heard God say. Matthew 4, verse 3. During that time, while Jesus was out in the wilderness fasting, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God. He just heard the voice of God say, this is my son. And now the enemy's trying to get it. Did you really hear that? If you really are the son of God, then Matthew chapter four, verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, took him to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, he's trying to create deception. He's trying to get him to just give up what he heard God say. That's what he does. He's a liar. He's trying to get you to question the word of God. There is no greater truth than the word of God. And if you are going to withstand a spiritual attack, if you are going to step into kingdom principles to fight spiritual warfare, you have got to be anchored in the truth that's God's word. You have to know what God says about you. You have to know what God thinks about you. You've got to know what God's called you, that God's given you a purpose and a destiny and a calling. Otherwise, the enemy is going to confuse you and deceive you, and you will want to give up and quit, or you'll be an enemy, an easy target for the enemy. There's a massive push among psychologists and counselors in this era of life for people that are under their care that in the late fall, they have to help people don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit in November. Don't, don't quit. And there, there's a lot of things that go into that. There's a lot of articles about that. Some of it is just the weather change. Nobody likes cold weather. Just kidding. Right. Some of it's less daylight. I mean, we just don't get the daylight, right? And, and that, that changes our body. Some of it's the time change. It's hard on our bodies. And so there's this massive push of don't quit in November. Don't, don't, don't quit. But can we go back to how this conversation started? that in the fall, there's also a massive spiritual attack and spiritual warfare that's going on. And you and I have to stand on the truth of what God has for you. And maybe down through history, I don't know, but in my lifetime, there has never been more of an attack on the Bible as the truth than there is today. 
Just because you have a YouTube account doesn't mean you're an authority on the Word of God. Just because you can get on TikTok doesn't mean you're a scholar on the truth in the Bible and the Word of God. So there's two types of truth, all right? Two types of truth. There is what we call absolute truth, and then there is relative truth. Let me give those definitions. Relative truth means it's true, but it can change. It's true, but it's, it's changing depending on the experience or circumstances or phenomena, right? So here, here's an example, okay? It is rude to leave your shoes on when you enter someone's house, okay? Well, that's true in Japan, but it's not true in the United States. I mean, United States, you wipe your feet. But in Japan, it's very disrespectful if you don't take your shoes off. So it's relatively true if you're in Japan, but it's not true if you're in the United States. Okay, so it's true depending on your experience, circumstance, phenomena. Absolute truth, it is unchanging. No matter where you are, it transcends all situations, all concepts whatsoever. Let me give you an example. Fire is hot. It's hot in Japan. It's hot in the United States, right? Here's the danger, that society is trying to take absolute truth, specifically when it comes to spiritual things and the Word of God and the Bible. Culture today is trying to take absolute truth and turn it into relative truth. So you will hear things like that. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Listen, baby girl, fire's hot no matter where you're at. So when you take relative truth an absolute truth, and you try to apply that to an unseen world, it's wonky. Well, hell might be real for you, but I've not seen it, so I don't believe it, so it's not true for me. And something that might help you stay anchored as we preparing for battles, we're preparing for spiritual warfare, might want to write this down. Maybe just memorize this. You can spit it right out. If God's word says it, that settles it for me. God's word is true. My lifetime, and I think in centuries, there's never been a greater attack on the validity and the truth of God's word. Where do you think that comes from? If I can get you to doubt God's word, it's not true, or it might be true for you, but it's not true. I can get you, to, if I can just cast a shadow of doubt then I not only doubt God's word, but I doubt how God feels about it. Or I doubt what God's word says about it, right? So I need what Paul says, the belt of truth and the body armor of righteousness. And he puts those two together here for a purpose. You need the belt of truth and the body armor of righteousness. Righteousness means right living. Living like God has called me to live. Living rightly, pursuing with everything I have to live holy, following in the ways of God. Does that make sense? So he says, put on the belt of truth and do your best to live righteously, live rightly. And here's why he puts these two together, because the biggest deception and the biggest lie that the enemy uses, it's not real. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. Is it really a sin? I mean, it's not gonna hurt anybody. It's not gonna hurt anybody. That's the exact deception. He caused Adam and Eve to sin. 
not really a sin if you eat that fruit. It's not really a sin if you disobey God. Listen, my friends, if the Bible says don't, you would do well to don't. Can I give you some examples? Everybody say, I love BK. You said it. And you asked for it. <laughs> All right. So it's going to get tense up in here, so I'm just going to do this for a minute. All right. I'm just going to talk to the wall back here. All right. All right. This is going to hurt in 2021. Sex before marriage, there's a word for it called fornication. That's a sin. Might be a sin for you, but it's not a sin for me. No, the Bible says it's a sin, and the Bible is absolute truth, and it's a sin. Unwholesome talk, gossip. Yeah, well, the Bible has the word ass in it. Got me. Yeah, because that's what they called donkeys in 16 AD when they were translating the Bible into English, all right? Gluttony. Homosexuality. See, we live in a day that is trying to take absolute truth, the word of God, and they're trying to make it relative. Well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And Paul says, if you are going to stand a chance in a spiritual battle, you better know what's true. Not what TikTok says is true, not what Instagram says is true, not what some news commentator says is true. What God's word said is true about your life. Because the world around you is going to start saying some funky, confusing, crazy stuff. And if you are not grounded, you will do exactly what Adam and Eve did, and you will fall, and the enemy will win that day. There's a lot of truth in the Bible that is full of truth. And just because somebody can get on social media and, and take one verse and kind of make it sound all funky and, oh, they're just trying to cause you to doubt what God's word says. And if I can get you to, to doubt that God's word is true, I now can doubt that what God believes about me is true. And listen, I'm going to give you seven absolute truths from the word of God that we need to stand there for on. Amen, everybody? Here we go. Number one, in the beginning, God created. That is an absolute truth as Christians we need to land on, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world will tell you nobody was there. There wasn't no video surveillance camera. There, there was no, that's a relative truth. That might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Listen, it has to be absolute, because if the Satan can get you to question Genesis 1-1, if he can get you to question the foundation of the story, the beginning of the story, then how do I know that what comes after it is true? That's why there's such an attack on the creation narrative that God created. If the first part is not true, how do I know that anything that comes from Genesis 1, verse 2, and after that is true? In the beginning, God created. His word said it, that settles it. Number two, I am created in his image. Genesis 1, 27, so God created humanity. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, we were created, male and female. He created them. You know what's important? Is you're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. God knew you before you were ever conceived. God has a plan, a purpose, and a destiny for your life. You're not a mistake. And every life that's created in the image of God is sacred beginning at conception. Number three, Jesus is real. 
He's God. He's the only way to heaven. I know that's three. We're going to combine them into one, baby girl. All right? Jesus is real. He's God, and he's the only way to heaven. When you compare biblical literature to other ancient literature, it withstands historical test after test after test. Jesus was real. There were witnesses that wrote of it, and they did it with historical accuracy. He is not made up by some cult. He was a man. He was God that came in man form. He was real, and he walked the earth. He's not made up. Jesus is real, but he's also God. John 3.16 says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son. So if Jesus is the Son of God, that means he's divinity. He is God. John 14.6, Jesus told them, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is real, he's God, and he's the only way to heaven. There's no other way to be saved than through the name of Jesus Christ. Buddha won't get you there. The ten pillars of Islam won't get you there. It's only through the name of Jesus. Number four, it's really important. The Bible is inspired and it's living. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all, all Scripture is inspired by God. So what that means, when Moses was writing the first five books of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit inspired him and prompted him every word, every principle, every thought to write. When David was writing the Psalms, the Holy Spirit divinely inspired him what to write. When Paul was writing letters, whether to Timothy, Titus, or the church at Ephesus, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It, it comes from God. It is inspired, but it's also living. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive, it's powerful. One translation says it's active. This means when you stand on it, when you pray, when you get it in you, it has a spiritual power that no self-help book has. It can bring comfort when no one or nothing else can. It can build your faith when nothing else can. The Bible is an inspired word of God, and it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Number five, we are all sinners. Romans 3, 23, for everyone has sinned. And we've all fallen short of God's standard for us. And we need a Savior. Good karma ain't going to do much for you one day when you die. Number six. This is one that's under attack. That God's love is free and unconditional. The enemy wants to spin this and twist this and misrepresent this and lie about this, but, but God's love is free. God's grace is free and unconditional. Romans 3.24, we just read Romans 3.23, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.24 says, but all of us have been freely justified. We've been freely made right by his grace through that redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.38, for I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love. It's unconditional. Nothing, including myself, including my sin. Once I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, once I'm in relationship with God, I've been forgiven, nothing can separate me from the love of God. His love is free and it's unconditional. You can't buy it. You don't have to clean up to get it. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. That's why they call it grace. And there's not big sins and small sins. There's only one sin that is unforgivable. And that's when you reject the offer of grace and mercy that God has for you. 
No, 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 no. I don't want you, Jesus. I don't need to be forgiven. Hell's just fine with me. That sin, he cannot forgive because you're not stepping into the grace and mercy that he offers. God's love is free and unconditional. Number seven. And when I finished up this sermon, I had six truths. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel holy. I need a holy number, Lord. I need a seventh one. God, could you give me seven? Seven's the holy number, Lord. I need seven. Whammo! It hit me. Here is the seventh one. Heaven and hell are real. Matthew 25, 46. Talking about people who are lost. They will go away into eternal punishment. That's hell. Those who are made right with Christ, the righteous, they will go into eternal life. That's heaven. I don't believe hell is real. doesn't make it go away. These seven truths. And there's, the Bible's full. The Bible's full of absolute truths you can build your life. But these seven foundation truths would be a great belt to strap around you and get them in you so that the enemy comes to tell you, oh, God's love is free and unconditional. I, yeah. That thing you did Thursday night, you think God still loves you? Yeah, he does. Because the truth of God's word says nothing can separate me from the love of God. God, I need to be forgiven. Would you forgive me? I confess I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't your best. Promise to God or yea and amen for those who are in Christ Jesus. These seven promises should change how I live. If heaven and hell are real, man, I should be dead set on a mission. See people come to know Christ so they don't have to spend eternity in torture. If heaven and hell are real, man, that should change how I live my life. These seven truths should impact the decisions I make in my life. And there's one decision, most important of all. What have you done with Jesus? Buddha can't get you to heaven. Seven pillars of Islam can't get you to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the gospel, plain, pure, and simple. And I walked through a lot of it right there, that we have all sinned. We've all made mistakes. And in that, it's separated us. But while you were dead in your sin, while you were a sinner, God sent Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. That's why he had to die on a cross and shed his blood. That shedding of his blood provided a path, provided a forgiveness for you and I's sin. That if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we would believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Have you ever done that? Where are you and Jesus at today? These seven truths are real. Where are you and Jesus at today? Because one day heaven's coming or hell's coming. It all depends on what you did with the moment just like this. I'm going to ask you to be real still. Nobody move. I mean, just a moment. Every head bowed and every eye closed. There's somebody here today. You know you're not in right relationship with Jesus. I invite you to pray this prayer with me. I'm not going to embarrass you. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to talk to anybody. I just want to lead you in a simple prayer of surrender. You ready? Just pray this with me. Say, dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today because I need you in my life. I don't want that old life out. Would you change me? Would you make me a new person? Would you come into my life and save me? I may not understand all of this, 
but I'm taking a step of faith. And today, Jesus, I completely surrender my whole life. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed, nobody's looking around. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'm not gonna embarrass you. You don't have to stand up. You don't talk to anybody. Just lift up your hand real high. I want to pray with you. Anybody here? Okay. All right, anybody else? All right. You may have the best decision you'll ever make with your life. God, you see these hands. Holy Spirit, you're here in this moment. You, you, you've called them into relationship. Lord, this is big. This is sometimes hard to understand because it's in the unseen world. And I pray, Father, that you would just fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, just give them understanding. Father, I pray you bring Christians around them. Help them to, to take these steps. Lord, you didn't call us to walk this alone. Now that I, I've taken that first step, Lord, I, I pray you bring people in their lives to be there encouraged, be there with them. Father, I pray you protect him from the enemy because he is going to seek to devour. Talk him out of this life. We know and we believe that the promises of God are yea and amen for those that are now in Christ. Father, just seal this moment in their heart. I love being a part of the church. Whatever it takes, Lord, to send to see people give their life to Christ. In the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus, we pray and everybody says, amen. Come on, Hill Spring, dig deep. Give God the biggest praise. Come on, he's great and greatly to be praised. Amen. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.